Welcome to our podcast. It's not prod. I can't hear it. It's pod. I think I think I need to teach language mythologies right about now. Let's try that one again. Hello, SL peeps. Welcome to True Confessions with Lisa and Sarah. Okay, can start confessing now. This is so cheesy. Hey, Lisa. What's up, Sarah? Not much, actually. I don't have anything to talk about. Actually, you do. There's a lot yeah. going on. You are working your butt off with the product team creating oh. <laughs> a new <laughs> application that apparently has sapped your brain of knowing that anything's going on in your life. Well, here's the deal is I always feel like we're going to use these couple minutes while we do this like little chit chat to talk about like fun things. So I was only <laughs> literally thinking about something fun that's happened to me lately. Um so the but new product is a fun sucker is what you're saying. You know what? It's it's both. The part of the creative part and all of the like cool, this new app is going to be so cool. I can't wait. That's fun. The um, making things happen and the long days, not so much, but we yeah. want to get this beta out soon. So anybody so. that's listening, if you want to learn more information, you can find it at kitforteams.com. That's K-I-T-F-O-R-T-E-A. M S dot C O M. All right. Enough of this. Let's get to why we're so good though. We never do stuff like that. (laughs) Look at you. Look at you on the marketing team. We actually have something else to talk about other than, um, but we have a guest in the confessional today. So we would like to welcome Susan Chavez to confessions. Welcome. Hello, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself. All right. Um, well, um, I'm Susan. I'm an SLP in the schools. Um, I started my CF in acute care, and then um, I was out of state at the time. And when I moved back home to California, I was lucky enough to get a job in the schools. And for a while, I was doing TK through high school. And then um, just this year, we were able to expand our team and I get to focus on elementary. (laughs) Wow. The whole, I know SLPs do that, the whole range. I always thought elementary, that range was a lot, but to go from, so is it, did you say TK? Is that just like pre-kindergarten, but not preschool? Honestly, I'm not too sure. It's transition kindergarten. Oh, there you go. I know. Yeah. He had something like that too. So it's not quite preschool. Not quite preschool, but it's not quite kinder. It's just, they just made a whole new grade, you know? They called it YOK for us because my oldest was in it and had a November birthday. So you were only eligible if you were born after the cutoff, but before like December 31st. Yes. There's definitely cutoffs and everything. Yeah. Yeah. All of our, all of our kids are like, they're four years, whatever, almost five, you know, they'll all be five by April. So. So you're going from four all the way potentially to 21. Um, no, not right now. I do, since I'm just elementary now, it's TK through fifth. So just, yes, like, well, I mean, previously though, if you were, oh, the range, no, um, their high school, they were, we, um, our school was newer. So we just added like 10th grade and we just added 11th okay. grade. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. Well, Still though. You can get up to 22 because if you turn 21 during your IEP, in high school, then you still can finish. So yeah, you can be all the way from like two, I think they start two years, nine months My in pre-K programs up to 22, which is, yeah. That's huge. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm glad yeah. I'm, I'm glad we expanded our team. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And so are you, like you're liking the elementary. Is oh, this like, this is where your heart is? Oh, yeah. yeah. We're great. Yeah. All yeah. Of- I was like a rock star in elementary. Like I did one semester in, or I mean, one school year in middle school and I came close to one time being very not nice to a student because I was very pregnant too. And I was just like, is this hormones or is it that every time I talk to this kid, she rolls her eyes and whatever. And I was like, this just isn't for me. I like them when they're younger. They're a little less cute. They're less cute. <laughs> yeah, they're cute body odor and more yeah, attitude. And I liked the whole, like I walk into a classroom and everyone gets excited. That's how life yeah. should be. That's how well, I Exactly. I'd love to that. So we have video, which you are not seeing, just we are seeing each other so that we don't over like interrupt each other too much. But um, Susan's in her speech room. And so before we hit record, I was saying like, oh, it makes me miss it. I do. I loved, I loved my speech room. Now, is, do you have a pretty decent sized room? No, girl. It, okay. It, okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I take that though. I used to call mine like the New York city apartment because it was about that size, but it was center. So I liked that because I could have access to the whole school. I didn't have a huge classroom, like on the edge of campus, but it was was my own space. I am in a good location. Oh yeah. As long as I have my own space to treat and the kids get privacy, I'm not mad. (laughs) Yes. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's really cute. I love it. So you, I know. Oh, go ahead, Lisa. No, I was just going to introduce the topic too, because really what we are trying to do this year too, is we're having um, SLPs that are in the trenches, just talk to us about things that they're passionate about. So I know you had um, written in saying that you wanted to talk about serving underserved um, populations. So is that kind of where you found yourself once you made that transition from acute to school practice? Yes, yes. Um, um, I'll tell you a little bit about my life. And so you can understand a little better about why I chose um, when I was looking for school jobs, um, why I specifically chose this area. Um, So the area I'm in right now is uh, a lower income area, um, predominantly Hispanic here, the kids, um, a lot of immigrant families. Um, And so, um, so my background, I Um, I grew up in a single parent home. There wasn't a lot of money. My mom um, worked two jobs up until I think I was in high school. Um, And we moved around a lot, right? Um, Just moved. I think I went to three different elementary schools, just how um, with all of that. Um, And we moved because my mom was always looking for a better neighborhood for us to live in or um, they wouldn't accept Section 8 at certain apartments anymore. So we'd get kicked out. So um, I moved a lot. Um, I went to different Title I schools. I was on free and reduced lunch um, through high school. So I'm really just familiar with this community. And um, when I am the first one in my family to go to college, so I had to put myself through college. Um, Undergrad, I worked. So I I had school full time. And then I worked, uh, what, like 25 to 30 hours sometimes. Um, Because once I transferred to university, I had enough student loans to pay for tuition and room and board, but I had, if I didn't work, I didn't eat. So um, my mom really couldn't afford to put me through college. So um, I, I did all of that. And so when I was looking for a job in the schools, I really wanted to kind of give back to kids that were like me. And I really wanted to um, be able to encourage them and show them just how, how you can really 
make your dreams come true just with your effort. Like you really have to want it and, and it is possible. So that was my whole goal. And so when I found this school, I just got really excited because it was kids that were very similar to my upbringing. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to serve them. How did you find um, the the job of being an SLP to begin with? Like what drove you toward that path? And, and even your transition of, I mean, you obviously said you started in acute care. That's very different than the setting you're in now. Okay. So um, I wanted to be an SLP um, in high school. Um, at, first, at first, I wanted to be a pediatrician. And then we took a field trip to the community college where I ended up starting at. Um, and that community college has the speech pathology assistant program. And so when I saw what they did there, I was like, oh, this looks like so much fun. Uh, I would love to help kids in this way. So that's how I um, got interested in SLP and it never left my mind. So it just became my goal after that day. And then um, the schools was actually an accident. So I, uh, when I moved from, I was in Illinois where I did my acute care. Um, when I moved from Illinois back home to California, it was during COVID. And so jobs were pretty scarce, um, at least for med SLP, because med SLP is very competitive. Um, and if they were looking for acute care SLPs, they wanted SLPs with more experience because we were dealing with COVID, right? And so um, it was really hard for me to get a job. And I was very stubborn. I just wanted acute care. I didn't want any other medical setting at the time. So then I said, okay, well, I'm fresh enough out of grad school. Maybe a school will take me. <laughs> um, and I just never left. So It's funny. We've talked about this, Sarah and I, that that's kind of like my path too, is I fell into working in the schools. But once I got there, I was like, what the heck? You know, I don't understand. There is is kind of a stigma sometimes, whether that is passed down at the grad level, your whether it's your peers that they're like, I want to do medical, this, yeah. that, the other, that. But um, when I got there, I was like, what the heck was I ever doing before? This is the greatest place ever to work. Oh my gosh. Yes. I, um, it is. Everything you said is true. It is at the grad level. Um, and it's so sad, you know, that it's that way. Um, but when I was working in acute care, I remember being very jealous of everybody that got time off during COVID because I did not get time off. Um, and so I just feel like the schools is the best kept non-secret there is just because the, you know, the embedded breaks and everything, you just can't beat it. Hundred yeah, percent, it's true. I, I first of all, your story. I had like full body chills while oh. you were telling that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And then, like even the the part right, like made a note about how your high school took you on that field trip to the community college, and that's where you learned about the program. Is that's huge because we talk about this a lot. Like you know, mm -hmm. obviously, we are in a predominantly white female field. And how do we, we need more representation so that kids see somebody who looks like them and relates to them, you know? And so I, we're always brainstorming, like, how, did you, how does this happen? Yeah. So what a cool thing that I, I hope everybody listening, like we need to get this to happen more often where, you know, we're taking kids from the high school. I know you have like a career counselor at, on most campuses, but I guess I had just never heard of a field trip to the community college. And to see like that you actually got to see therapy in progress to make you interested because if you had just heard about that role, you've been like, okay, whatever, but I'm going to be a pediatrician. But you, when you get to see that in action, that so that was all organized by your high school then? Was it in conjunction with the university, like where they wanted to show off different programs or 
or yeah, the it was, community college? Yeah, no, no. It, yeah, it was the community college and it was actually the speech pathology assistant program. So what I remember is we went into, I think it was probably like a simulated therapy room maybe, and they had the games out. And then they explained, they explained like what, how they use games in therapy. And, and since I really at that time really wanted to work with children, I, I just loved the idea. I was like, wait, I'm helping kids by playing with them, you know? Yeah. And you know, my high school brain thought that obviously we do more than that, but um, at that time, that's what sold me. And I just pursued it as my career. So that, that's what it was. And so we got to see um, at that community college also, they have like, um, what is it? Dental hygienist. They had a dental hygienist program, a nursing one. So we got exposed to all of those things, which was really cool. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I just think that is huge because I think that's probably the biggest part of the problem is people. I mean, I know I meet people all the time who are like, what do you do for a living? And I tell them, they're like, what is that? They you still know. don't know. Even <laughs> when I was in, um, once I started college at the same community college, I went to a career advisor and just to kind of make sure I was on the right path. And they kept telling me I was a communications major. And I said, no, no, it's a communicative disorders. No, no, it's a communications major. And so I was going back and forth with this professional who's supposed to know and they didn't know. And mm-hmm. this was for their school, you know. Amazing. Oh my gosh. So cool. Okay. So I want to talk about this. So, um, I, we worked in Mesa public schools in Arizona, um, which is a huge school district. It's the largest, Mesa? The largest in Arizona. Yeah. Yes. And so I don't know the percentage. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I would definitely the majority of schools are title one. Yeah. There's probably only a few that aren't. Exactly. There's um, three that aren't. Okay. Out of a lot of schools. And so I loved my experience and the school that I was at, um, it, it was just the coolest thing. But let's talk a little bit about like um, what what you mean by um, underserved yeah. populations. Can can you like kind of explain what that is a little bit? For sure. So underserved okay. populations are people with limited access to resources. So that's like the broad definition, right? So they, and a resource could be anything. It could be food, home, it could be family. Um, I have like some of like the barriers, or a lot of our kids or like language, right? That's like access. Um, some of the barriers that like our kids have, right? Sometimes they don't have access to their parents, not because they're orphans or anything, but because mom and dad work or we just have mom or we just have dad and this person works, right? So um, really that's that's kind of what I'm referring to as underserved. These are, these are people that really don't have access to a lot of the things that we do, right? Um, even at this level of um, where we're as professionals now or, or um, the, you know, more affluent families would. Okay. Does that help? Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. And I, I guess that would lead me to the next question then it is, so what's the impact that yeah. has on students? For sure. Okay. So I actually, so I have my notes as I. Yes. No, please. I'm so glad. I love this topic so much. Yeah. Okay. So one of the um, barriers that kids have is the language, right? So, um, which is huge. And this is, you know, something that we've all heard before, but I really do want to give you guys a little bit of a perspective on it. So a lot of our kids with language barriers, right, they get referred for SPED still to this day. And you were talking about English as a second language, those kind of acquisition barriers. Yes. And so um, a lot of the times I find that the clinician didn't dig deep into the 
the history, right? So um, why, you know, that's an issue because not they, one, they have a special ed label on them, on them. Two, they're taken out of the gen ed classroom without reason, right? There's like no reason for them to be out if they don't really need it. Um, and they're taking a spot from kids who really need it, right? Because your caseload is full. So you're like, I can't take on any more kids or, or that kid's going to have to wait longer. Um, I had a, a Vietnamese student last year who um, luckily it was time for her reeval. And so she's Vietnamese and she had uh, goals for L and R. And um, those are not sounds that are found in the Vietnamese phonetic inventory, right? And so when I was looking into her past reports, I found that the SLP never interviewed parent and never asked them about um, language and speech in native in the native language. And so when I talked to dad, he said everything was normal, that it wasn't until she started school that they told him that she had a speech problem and they put her in speech. Um, and what resulted from that was I, I was able to exit her, but this girl, she was a sixth grader. She was insecure about her L's. And she told me like, well, I want to keep coming to speech because I want to fix my L. And I told her like, you don't need to fix anything. Your L, like, you know, this is not a sound that's in your natural Vietnamese inventory, what you've learned. It's normal. It's normal for that sound to be hard for you. It doesn't mean that you can't ever make it, but it, it just means that you don't have a problem. Like it's very normal for you. Um, so things like that, we really want to avoid that. And so like one tip I want to give in that is to really do a thorough history. I know it's like common sense, but really this is why, right? This is why we want to do it because now this little girl, I don't know what she's feeling. I don't know what she's thinking, right? But that left an impact on me about how important it is that um, we really just make it a point to remember, like these are kids that don't have, um, that sometimes they, they need you to be their advocate too. Well, and I think it's interesting what you said too about the whole idea of you're taking them out of gen ed when they're when it's not a special education issue. So in that district that Sarah was saying that we both worked in, I remember I used to think I had kids that were um, ELL, but also um, had a language disorder and they had different classrooms that were almost like self-contained ELL classrooms that were meant for students to quickly acquire English so they could go back into a general, like a regular um, English speaking. Well, the other one was English speaking, but a regular classroom. Mm -hmm. And the issue with our kids that were diagnosed with a language disorder and ELL is they could never test out to get out of that self-contained classroom. I used to think like, and I worked in elementary, but I was like, oh, but this is awesome because they're getting such like language rich instruction that, you know, this is great. This is, you know, great for their language disorder. I remember sitting down with one of the bilingual uh, SLPs in our district and also somebody who oversaw that program that kind of talked about why that's not great. And it was such an aha for me because they were saying that, you know, again, the idea of those were to be short-term intensive pushes. So maybe a school year or something and then get you back in. The long-term effect, which a lot of times we don't see when we're in elementary because we're so focused on what we're doing right here, but that they were not getting the academic skills because the focus was so on language that they would get so behind on academics that by the time they got to middle and high school, they were so behind that it became overwhelming and the the rate of dropout even was Uh higher. Uh So you don't think about like that ripple effect. And I was like, oh my God, forever I've been thinking this is the greatest for my language impaired students when in fact it was a disservice because really they're not in there to acquire language. They were in there because of their language disorder and that wasn't the proper 
way to support them mm-hmm. in accessing the general ed curriculum. So it was a whole like, oh my gosh. Well, and that's what, it makes me think too, because I think, again, most of us do have that service heart and we want to help. And so we have a hard time sometimes saying no, or like, I think I even, you know, would think I know I can offer value and support, but it, so I think it's that, like, I know I can help this child, but they don't have a disorder. Like, I need to recognize that that is not my role in working. You know what I'm saying? I always just wanted to like help all the children and like work with all the children, whether they're gen ed, sped, like, let me just, whatever. And so I think that is, it does get really hard um, when you see that kids, students are struggling and and you feel like you have some value and you can offer some, something for that student. But yeah, that other thing too is we had Marie Ireland on, podcast, what, two years ago, Lisa? And she was talking about dynamic assessment and why that's so important. And in particular with students who are English language learners, um, because obviously we want to make sure that we're qualifying students with disorders and not differences, but also it's going to help your caseload. Like you should do this, like to advocate for yourself as well. Like it's a benefit for you. And so, yes, you need to take the time to do a really thorough assessment. And so you talked about the history mm-hmm. is one of the the things that you need to make sure you're getting a history. And so that's, that can sometimes be a challenge if you're having difficulty getting a hold of parents or, um, you know, or maybe they're in a foster care situation where the caregiver doesn't have access to history. Um, and so there is, there's some challenges to probably even that part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then like, I guess walk us through the whole, like your whole assessment that you're, that you do when something's referred. Uh, for like a bilingual kid? Yes. Let's start with English language. Yes. Okay. okay so, um, yeah, normally, okay. Well, okay. Let's just assume it's an initial. Okay. Just to start fresh, there's no history, no like prior reports or anything. Um, a lot of the times, when I get a referral from my teachers, um, a lot of times the parents do know. So I really haven't had too much trouble um, with parents that are not responding, right? Um, but if I did, then I would do my best to, because I am a bilingual SLP, it's a little bit easier for me, right? I don't have to wait on a third party. Um, so what I do is I ask the child questions and I try to have a conversation with them if, if it's Spanish, if it's, if it's Spanish, if it's a different language, then I'll, I'll definitely get a translator in. Um, but yeah, I really do just try to have a conversation with them, get the history from the kid a little bit, just like, well, how much Spanish do you speak? Just kind of understanding a little bit where it comes from. And if they do speak a lot of Spanish, which um, I'll use this 10th grader I, I've had since she was in seventh grade as an example, she's from Colombia and she um, she she does have a disorder, and when she speaks in Spanish, I'm noticing the patterns um, in her syntax, the errors in her vocab, our tick too. Poor babe, she's got a lot. But um, so when I'm talking to her in Spanish, I'm hearing it right for myself. So if I had, if she spoke a different language, I would just really coach the translator to to look for things like tell me if there's anything that's a little bit off or anything that you know, um, doesn't sound like you would normally hear in someone this age or, um, 
something like that. So I don't know, after I get a history from either the student or the the parent, right, about um, when parents are there, I ask them first word, like milestones. I ask about milestones. I ask them if if they, you know, had any trouble understanding their child or if they felt like their child spoke at an appropriate age. And usually they'll tell you, especially because if they have more than one, they'll compare them to the other siblings. And um, so I, I really do try to understand why the child is there and, and telling them this is what the teacher is seeing or, or tell me more about your concerns. So once I've learned why the, why the child is here, obviously I take them in and depending on the assessment, I give them the appropriate assessment as appropriate as I can, right? <laughs> None of them are perfect, but, um, and then I, I, in my assessments, I really, um, weigh heavy on the informal stuff like observations and student interviews are big because you learn so much from the kid. They will tell you things and, um, watching them interact with peers, watching them interact in their classes and during unstructured times is just very valuable. So I, I do see that a lot. So because you'll have kids that won't qualify on a standardized assessment, but you're seeing issues um, gen- in the generalization, right? And so um, you really, <clears throat> that's why like dynamic assessment and a lot of your informal is is very, very, very valuable. Um well, and I, probably the main thing to rely on yeah. is the, the problems kids, with standardization. Yeah. I think when you work with ELL kids after a while, it became so obvious to me, like even the kids on my caseload where I'm like, this kid dismissed, 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 because language impaired kids are language impaired kids. They don't learn something like that. So the dynamic assessment will help you figure that out if it's a new to you kid, or if you already have kids on your caseload that are diagnosed, but you're like, clearly this kid does not have a language disorder. This is just yeah. If you introduce something and teach it a couple times, that kid can do it like that quickly. Especially yeah. if it's like just a few cues here and there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Big red flag. <laughs> yeah. And then you know, and one thing that I I like to gauge is okay, is this something a TA could do? Um, and if the TA can do it, there's no need for me. And and that's what um I, I was telling Sarah earlier that I have a CF right now, and I tell her like. Does this child child need your skilled service? Do they need a skilled speech pathologist for this? Or is it something a TA could help with? Like presenting a visual and reminding them to look at it, that's not something that you really need SLP services for, right? So, well, yes. And that's that whole idea of resources. So thinking about, first of all, determining that eligibility. But then, I mean, one of those criteria of eligibility is does it require specially designed instruction and if the answer is no to that, even if you've got scores that are here, then you do, you look at the other resources and we have talked, Sarah and I have talked a lot about that. I think that's the beauty of a school campus is that there are a lot of people and you identify who is best able to support whatever need that is, whether it be the teacher, you know, one of the SPED professionals, the, the TA, whatever. Yeah. One thing I was just thinking, so I know we we just spent that part talking about English language learners, um, uh, but our monolingual English speaking students in your um, community and at your school, um, how does, how do you see them showing up in terms of, um, what am I trying to ask here? Being underserved? Yes. Yeah. How does that, how does that impact like the assessment and the treatment and all of those things? Oh, such a good question. Um, so yeah, you have like kids that 
even if they speak the language, right? Um, a lot of times what we're, what I see here, it's not everybody, right? I don't want to ever generalize. Um, but parental education is very limited. Sometimes um, we have parents that never finished high school, parents that just finished high school, some college, you know? Um, and so those kids, yeah, like they, oh man, they're, they're just not, they're like, they have limited access to their parents too, right? Um, not just those kids, but most of them. Um, but to answer your question, I find that sometimes parents are not as involved or they don't because they don't understand. Um, they do their very best to understand. Um, it is easier to communicate with the parents that uh, speak English only and they're not from, I guess, if they're from here, um, it's easier to kind of train them on how to support their child at home if they're available because um, you're not dealing with cultural differences as well um, and so a lot because they're Americanized right and so they kind of like they, they follow you so um, so those kids like sometimes it's hard for the parent even if I can train them and I do my best and I send resources um, but they have to work like our parents have to work their priority is putting food on the table having a roof over the head of their their kids and so um, that's where those kids will be underserved where, yeah, I'm working with them here in the speech room. And a lot of times they have other services. It's, it, I rarely have, actually, I still have not come across a kid that's, um, specific language impairment where it's just a language disorder. I haven't, I haven't come across that here yet. Um, so my kids also get academic supports, like our, the language kids, even if they're monolingual, um, they're still getting like academic supports in addition. So we're working with them, but obviously like you need, more help you need more practice and that's where they get that's where they're underserved too and just so sad sometimes they're just multiple grade levels behind and you know well, and oftentimes too I think about you know um oftentimes it, they probably didn't have preschool experience right or because maybe they were always having to go to daycare because again parents have to work put food on the table um and in the maybe the language opportunities are different um, if there's not an adult at home reading stories to the children and, and constantly talking, um, to their kids, like I did, I never stopped talking to my children. Still don't. <laughs> yeah, still don't. Um, and so all of those things will have an impact yeah. on, on the students that you're working with. Right. Well, and I think too, what the huge part of all of this is perspective, because that's where my, the school that I worked at, and it was the only school that I worked at where I saw a kindergarten class go from kindergarten to sixth grade. So the perspective was super interesting for me. And I remember um, that first year I had a, a little boy and let's just say his name was David. He was in kindergarten and the parents come in for the IEP meeting. They, they attended, but you know, the, the mom's just there the whole time like this. And then at the end, she's like, can I take your picture? And I'm like, oh, okay. Come to find out the, the parents both had intellectual disabilities. Yeah. This little boy, the support from even like that academic perspective was not super there. And then I, I remember around second grade, he had this teacher who was from the Midwest, very, you know, like used, used to seeing probably a very lily white caseload. <laughs> and she um, would kind of get on him because he was late for school every day. 
Yeah. And he should be able to set his alarm and she'd even like drive by. And I, I always imagine like the, the wicked witch of the West, but like I see her in a minivan, like, and she just point at him and point at the school. If she saw him and she'd get so mad. And I remember having these conversations like, look, my kids are neurotypical and have me as support telling them 9 million times a day, brush your teeth, wash your hands, set your alarm. And they still don't do it. So here's a kid that's doing his best, but going back to that idea of underserved being just resources, if you don't have, you know, supports come in all different ways. If the Mm -hmm. parents were not able to support in these ways, we're thinking a six slash seven-year-old can get himself up to school and it just be like, you know, he should be able to do it. He's seven. So I think the perspective piece is huge. Like if you are working, whether you have one, you know, you're going to have at least one kid no matter where you are, somebody's going to be underserved in some way. Absolutely. I'm glad you said that too, because I remember thinking too, like I'd I'd listened to some of the ladies in the front desk, you know, at the administration part of it and a lot of judgment for the family, you know, when, for those students who were late often or missed a lot of school or maybe their hygiene issues, things like that, a lot of judgment for the parents. And so I think that I love your point on that perspective piece that, you know, clearly not everyone was raised, you know, equally. And I think that, I mean, it's just like, that's a duh. Like if you just say that out loud, duh. And so we all have, I know biases, but I think when you're working, particularly in a school setting, you are going to come across so many kids, so many families, so many dynamics that it's just about trying to understand. So if something is happening, Ask the questions, try to understand and see how you can support, see what are is in the wheelhouse of the school for resources, but well, and their life experiences. Yeah. I mean, again, I know not all, but and oftentimes I, I have a feeling some of these children have seen things or, you know, had experiences that we don't want to, children to have. And so then you've got the trauma piece too, um, which I loved. We had that trauma-informed care course. And that was eye opening for me because I never, obviously I I considered that and knew that some of my students who had um, challenges in their lives, home lives, how that would show up. But I never really considered maybe my role in that or how that changes the service that, and the way I'm showing up for these students. Well, they um, get rocked like in any, like from something in your day and how that ripple effects into yeah. everything that happens after that versus yeah. kids that are in kind of, you know, we do have some kids that are in constant trauma. And, you know, I had a friend that was a fifth grade teacher and I remember her sharing once that, you know, she had, had not even gotten her key in the door to unlock her door. And she had one kid that came up to her and told her about abuse. She had another kid come up to her and say that, um, she had not um, been at home all night because her grandmother didn't trust anybody in the house when she was not there and had gone, you know, into Phoenix to do some things that mm-hmm. were illegal. And so made the kids sit out on like the porch all night. So these are the kind of things that, you know, think about learning and how those things impact their ability to, to learn. And, you know, if it's ongoing, it, it, it's it's a lot. 
You guys just like took all my points. Oh. <laughs> no, 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 please. I want to hear from your perspective. Again, that's why I love having somebody in the trenches. So, Everything yes. you said, right? Um, I, 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 yeah, I've also had, um, I have it in my notes here, like, to talk about like there's parents they can't read and um yeah everything you guys said is a hundred percent and that's why um and you know I want us to just give ourselves a little bit of grace right especially like for the listeners just to remember like if you've ever had a bias or a judgment like you know note it and and then grow from it because it's very easy right when we're in our white castles <laughs> um right when we're not when we're not in these um situations so for someone like me who's kind of been you know who's grew up a little bit it was a little hard um it's a little bit easier for me right to see which is why I'm so honored to be here that way I could help people that you know whose upbringing was um not the same as mine and you know you had both parents and you your parents were there for you and everything like to remember that, you know, the, when you work with these populations, just to keep those things in mind, like these kids, um, you know, they don't always go home to a hot meal. Like they look forward to school. I remember I looked forward to school. I hated breaks because I just liked being at school because when I was home, I was home alone taking care of my brother. And so like, um, it, you know, I, I just wanted to be at school. Um, my mom wasn't at home to cook for me. So I had, you know, we ate a lot of frozen dinners and so school, like I had a hot meal there and I loved going to school. The same with a lot of our kids, some of them very similar to me, right? They're eating frozen dinners or they're not eating dinner at all. Um, so just remembering those things, right? Um, and so, I don't know, working with your cafeteria, befriend your cafeteria staff. So maybe they can give you some snacks to keep in your room for that one kid that you know maybe didn't have lunch or that, or that, you know, the kid that you have at the end of the day that, you know, you could give them some snacks for them to eat at home so that they're not super hungry or um, just those, just to, I mean, it's so sad, right? But um, just to remember, like, this is, this is what people are dealing with sometimes. Um, And so when you have your kids and you want them to practice skills at home, just, you know, maybe not send a big old packet, maybe send something easy for them, maybe something that they were really good at in speech. And that way they can just practicing that good skill and um, remembering that if you have parents that don't know how to read, ask them if you can read something to them. Or um, what I do in IEPs is I, I'll, I'll speak slower um, and I chunk my information and then I'll double check. Does this make sense? Please let me know if you have any questions. Remember, and I, and I always remind parents, remember, you can tell me if you disagree. Remember, you can tell me if you don't like this goal. Remember, like, I'm just reminding them, like, this is, you can say the this. part of it, because I do think that is something in the title schools I've worked at, they very much had um, respect for the schools. They they looked at the schools as a a form of support for their families. Yeah. And that's not always what you get. Like even I, I feel and like the experts and the authority. Right. So we're so not just trusting them. Right. So that, that's, I, that is huge. That is so, that's a great yeah. point. Mm-hmm. And it's, a you know, a big cultural thing too, especially among a lot of immigrant families. Again, I don't want to generalize. It's just what I've, what I've seen, you know, a lot of them, they just, you're the expert, go for it. Like whatever you say. And, and then I really, 
because I really care about them and I don't want them to just sign a paper. Um, I really do try all the time, like to tell them, remember you have rights. This is your right. Like you can tell me, um, it's okay. Like we will work together. And, 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 you know, a lot of times, um, sometimes they will, and I love it when they do. And I love it when they ask questions and just really making, making it a safe space as much as you can. Right. Um, and you're setting the tone for the future too. If you're working in yeah. elementary and this is a kid that has services ongoing, then you're setting that tone that, you know, Yes. When I think, was it Lillian? So one of our summit presentations a few years ago, I feel like she's the one, the first one who I'd ever heard kind of say it that way. Like we are oftentimes the only advocate in that meeting right. um, who is saying, no, don't sign this, you yeah. know, unless yeah. you are, a, I, you are not signing this unless you totally understand, you know? Um, so I love that you, that you hit that point. Another point I wanted to make about that, about when you guys talked about perspective is I think it was a summit one time, maybe a couple years ago, where you got, where we had a speaker who talked about your privilege. Was that a summit or was that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so, man, definitely for, I don't know if you guys have like that graphic that you can put in the show notes. Yes. Like when I, that presentation was so great, even for me, right? Because you guys, you guys heard my background, but now, right, my privilege has changed. And so um, now I'm, I'm closer to that privileged middle. I think it was in the middle. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. graphic, but um, Right. Because now I'm educated. I have a, you know, a college education. I have this job. Um, I can support myself and my husband. <laughs> and so like, it's just a whole, you know, yeah, it changes. Right. And so well, I really impact. Absolutely. I didn't know there were that many forms of privilege. That was what was so eye-opening to me because I think we do tend to box privilege into certain areas. And then when you look at that, you're like, oh crap. Yeah. Yeah. So with that too, like remembering when you're working with these kids, they have limited life experiences, right? Especially life experiences that cost a lot of money. So like here in Southern California, we are really, what, two hours away from Big Bear, um, and that they're skiing up there. Our, my kids aren't going skiing on Christmas break. You know, they're not doing that stuff. Some of them have never been to the mountains, even though it's two hours away. Some of them have never been to the beach, even if it's 45 minutes away from here. Um, so just remembering, especially break time, not saying, what are your special plans for break? Or what are some fun things you're doing for break? Because, you know, some of them would love probably to go to, we have a bunch of amusement parks here, right? Like Legoland, Knott's Berry Farm, Disneyland. They're not going, you know? And so just remembering like being careful with how you ask and, and trying to just really relate to maybe some things they would do. So if they ask you what you're going to do, just I'm going to eat cereal in front of the TV or, you know, just, mm -hmm. yeah. That is a, that is a perfect point too about the privilege thing that, yeah. you know, you've got to take into account is your life experience and how that clouds and your ability to understand that not everybody's getting that. Um, and I remember when we first created the present level assessments and toolkit, thank goodness. And this is why we love SLPs too, because they're so great at feedback. And so thank goodness we had some people reach out and go, you know, the story in your present level assessment, I, I actually hate to read it to some of my students because- mm -hmm. They can't relate to it. It seems real insensitive. You know, can you guys change it? And I'd be like, oh my God. Like, and that, 
what's interesting is Lisa and I were so proud of ourselves because we did think about things like that. Like, obviously we don't want to tell a story about the beach or something, you know, that might not be relatable to students. Like, let's try to think about experiences that most individuals would have, you know, on a daily basis, but we absolutely did it. And we're fortunate again, enough to have people say, "Mm, not great change this one. We always have biases. Uh, Always. In our entire life, there's always going to be something that shows you, oh crap, that was like in my blind spot. I didn't even realize that. So I think that the point is like, don't beat yourself up about it. Like how, you know, it was like, oh crap, we thought we did well about this, but then we changed it based on feedback. And so whether, I mean, that's a obviously very isolated experience about our software, but that happens in life. Yeah. On the daily, you're going to have people that show you some biases and it's just sit in it and think about it. Think why you have it. Think how you can course correct. You know, it's, yeah. that's the beauty. Yeah, of- we've, we've ruffled some feathers along the way with the last <laughs> few, with the last few summits and our equity series. Um, and so we get a lot of feedback from that too. And again, I appreciate all of it and I, we listen to it and we take it into consideration. But I, I think a lot of times we're getting real stuck on this idea of white guilt and, you know, acting like there's shame in the color of our skin. That isn't what any of it's about. It's about the different types of privileges that we've had, because again, our life experiences, how we were raised, we have two parents, you know, did, you know, did, did we go to an elementary school that had resources? Did we, so all of those things impact us and they're going to impact your ability to serve these students. And so that's why we do these courses and conferences. It is not to shame anyone. We're not trying to like, you know, make you feel bad because you couldn't help that your parents were white. Um, (laughs) It's not about that. It's just about understanding how the color of your skin may have impacted your life differently than Mm -hmm. other person's colors of skin and how that absolutely impacted their life. So- and we hear all too, the privileges. Well, I think the basic thing that we hear out of those two is like, well, I treat all my kids the same. And yeah. I, you know, I give everyone equal therapy, but that was kind of the the point too, is that, you know, yeah. kids are going to come at you with different needs and we have to be able to adapt. And we do that all the time in our therapy sessions about like what, how they're interacting in that moment. So just kind of pull that lens back a little bit and just adapt and see that kid for all that they have to represent, not just, you know, the little time you have in speech therapy. Yeah. yeah. You guys really are, are making your <laughs> There is no script either. Isn't it amazing? I tell you, these conversations always just work out. Yes. So I wanted to also talk about another important thing to remember when you're working with this population is to really make it a point about lear- to, about learning and understanding their culture. Okay. And let me tell you something. Culture Everybody has culture. Sarah, Lisa, you have culture. Okay, um, what what do I mean by that? Okay, if if we're, if all three of us are at a potluck and all three of us are bringing a taco salad, I guarantee you that taco salad will not look the same. It won't, From Sarah, because yeah. it's going to be you know, <laughs> right? depending on your traditions, depending on how you learned. That's culture. So you guys are going to make that taco salad, and you're going to add specific- or buy it. Or buy it. <laughs> That's my culture. Mine's going to look like Safeway every time. <laughs> That's culture. So you don't have to come from an, 
country outside of the U.S. to have culture, right? So just understanding what does that look like in your front in your student's life, and that is not only going to help you build rapport with your student, but it's going to help you, like you said, individualize your treatment, individualize your approach to tr- working with these students and their families too, right? So, um, it puts students and families at ease. It um, helps you expand your knowledge about them, can help limit some prejudices and biases, right? If you understand like, oh, okay, mom doesn't make our 8 a.m. IEPs. Oh, well, that's because mom worked overnight, right? And so she doesn't wake up until 11 a.m., right? So I, I have a parent like that. So we only call her between certain hours to schedule IEPs because she works mornings and through the night. And so Right. Just knowing these things, um, knowing that the kids are going to the babysitter. Um, also, like. Um, oh, sorry. Hold on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Just, just just knowing where where they're coming from, what they're going home to. Um, just understanding what what does life look like at home? Um, an example is, um, you know, learning about any coming of age celebrations. Right. So here with like Hispanic community, there's quinceañeras. Um, if you work with a lot of Jewish kids, maybe they'll have bat and or bar mitzvahs. Just learning about those things and honestly, like being OK with not knowing about them and asking them. The kids love to tell you. Um, I have a um, so my my descent is Mexican descent. My mom's from Mexico and um, I have a, my Colombian student. I don't know a lot about Colombian. I ask her. I, I asked her. I've asked her, like, do they have tamales in, Cal- in Colombia? Do they celebrate quinceañeras in Colombia? And she'll she loves to tell me about it, you know. Um, and those are some things that I learn and um, and it helps me not only grow closer to her, but helps me understand like what her family dynamic is like and um, and all of those things. It gives me good information. Well, and that's huge. Yeah. Just because I work with one, like even they say that about autism. You work with one kid with autism, you work with one kid with autism. Like everybody, even if you have two students from Mexico, they could have different backgrounds, different you know, different things going on that you just are being inquisitive and we work with humans. That's the whole point of this is we're connecting with humans and supporting them, you know, and and it's a beautiful thing. I have always said, I I thought my strongest skill as uh, practicing SLP in the schools was rapport. The students knew I loved them and I was there and they could come talk to me and tell me things. And I would, you know, always have their back and advocate for them. Um, didn't always think my therapy skills were the strongest part, but you know, I think a lot of that is, is, is important for all students we work with, regardless of, of, you know, where you are, what setting you're in. Um, but specifically with, with underserved populations, I think, you know, they need somebody they trust and yeah. And, and that, again, that rapport alone really has such a huge impact on yeah. how they're going to progress. And, and I think sometimes we skip that part, you know, because we go straight into their goals and how we can treat those skills and how we can get them out of therapy, you know? <laughs> they will not work for someone they don't like. And this yeah. is, I'm telling you, this girl, I've had her since she was a seventh grader. So I have had, I have had very limited problems with her um, motivation, right? Um, she had her days, she was a moody teenager and that was fine. And I would give her her space on those days, but she worked for me. Um, and that's exactly, you hit, you hit the a big important point, right? Cause we still have a job to do. We still, um, have things, you know, duties like data to collect and reports to write and all that stuff. So 
in order to effectively do that, your, your students do need to trust you and they need to know that you really do have their best interests at heart. When adults yeah. don't want to work for people they don't like either, it's just we get a paycheck. You know, yeah. these kids are in school. So yeah. if they don't want to do it, they don't like you. You know, there are plenty of adults I've worked with where I'm like, man, if I wasn't getting this paycheck, I wouldn't be here. So, you know, we just have to keep that in mind that there are many little, many people. I know because I do remember a few times, and Lisa knows because she was the lead. And so I'd be calling her about these situations. Lisa always said, are you making friends again today, Sarah? And I'm like, "Mm -hmm." mm-hmm. But it was, um, where was I going with that with the rapport and students? Oh, I never had the issues and challenges the other team members were having with that child. And I remember thinking like, I'm not a behavior expert. It's not like, it's not like I've got these like amazing boundaries and like, you know, techniques. I honestly, I just thought it was my rapport. Yeah. I think even families will come too. where, I mean, even talking about before how, you know, some kids don't like to leave school. There are behaviors that are seen at home that aren't seen in a classroom. There are behaviors we won't see in a smaller speech room that are happening in a classroom. True. And we we are able to give, I think, a little bit more attention and build that rapport a little bit more easily. I mean, not even, it is not everyone can build rapport. I don't mean it like that, but I just mean like we have this ability to work with kids one-on-one or in small groups. And that is not something that happens probably a lot in other, um, other professions that are working in the school setting. So we need to- You're right. And I do, I'm glad you just said that though too, because I do think sometimes I did forget that it's very different. Um, Again, like I had kids kindergarten through sixth grade. So I'd known these kids for six years. Teachers Mm -hmm. typically only have that student for one. They have a student, they have a class size of 32. They don't get to sit around and chit chat all day long with kids. You know, I want to chit chat. I want these kids talking to me because that's the goal. So you're right. Like there is definitely- Benefit. But there is, I, I know what you're saying though, too. I always felt like that too. I never had kids that wouldn't talk to me in evaluations. Like I just felt like it's that whole idea of connecting with somebody authentically. Like mm-hmm. you are there, you're learning about them. They can tell, you can tell when somebody talks to you, if they're really interested or if they're just going through a checklist of questions. I mean, we, we can tell this as people interacting with other people and they are smart. They're, they're tiny, but they're smart little things. And we know they're genuinely interested. Yes. I always tell people do not, do not underestimate kids. (laughs) Not special needs kids. They, Mm -hmm. those kids, they have, they outwit me all the time. I get, I get all the time by them. (laughs) I know. And I would, again, I know there's a benefit because I'm having them in small groups, but my, my favorite students were like kind of the naughty ones. Cause they're so clever. Like yeah. I was like, I know that was naughty, but it was a great strategy. Like, <laughs> oh my god, that was clever. And you count it towards their goal. You're like, what? yeah. I'm like, did you just see what they did? Like, that was problem amazing. solving skills, initiation, yeah. <laughs> execu- executive function. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, and yeah, you guys um, have said a lot of really great things, but you know, a big thing is right that relationship building and. Like you guys are saying, we do have that special um, privilege of having them in a small group. Um, but also, like, we don't know them throughout the day. So if they're being naughty outside of the speech room, instead of going like, well, they're they're perfect and with, for me, going to the teacher and, and finding out. Exactly. <laughs> finding out, like, and working with the teacher, like, oh, wow, you know what? Like, 
I I believe you. I completely believe you. I haven't seen it in my speech room. It's probably because it's a small yes. group. Um, so what, you know, and, and I, I've done it in the past, especially usually it'll happen with like a pragmatic student. And so the teacher will say, do they do this with you? And then, you know, if they don't do that behavior, I address it in speech and I say, hey, your teacher shared that after lunch, you're doing this and let's work on that because you have a goal for problem solving. And this is how we can work on that because, you know, when you do this, it causes this. And just explaining to the student like why we're working on that. And then it helps not only, um, it doesn't just help you, you know, have something to treat in the speech room, but also helps that trust and relationship with the teacher, right? Because we can't serve these kids by ourselves. It, it takes a village no matter when or where you are raising a child or whatever. Um, but it, it really does take a village, especially with these kids. Everybody should be working together. And because the ultimate goal is for these kids to meet, to not need us and to excel academically. And um, I don't, yeah, we, we all have the same mission, right? If we're working in a yep. school, we all have the same mission. Yep. And this was, I did not intend to plug Kit again, but it is probably <laughs> the most exciting thing I think about this and why we, you know, originally we were just going to do kind of a version two of SLP toolkit. Um, and we thought, no, this is going to be a whole new app. And mainly that team functionality. We, yeah. we knew we needed to get something for the whole team um, to, in order to serve the whole student, yeah. you know? And so, and that, that communication piece, because it's hard. You've got big caseloads. The teachers are busy. Um, and so we don't always have the opportunities to, to plan together and talk about progress together. And, and so I, I think this is going to be probably the, one of the most exciting parts. Um, I, can, yes. I, I think it's going to help. I hope. That's well, even when we've given presentations, we say you are not an island. Like that's the that's the whole point. You don't you don't want to be an island. Yeah, you want to do this with your team and rely on each other and rely on each other's strengths and in and support each other's, you know, weaknesses in supporting that whole student. Yeah. No, and I'll plug Kit for you because <laughs> my organization, everybody wants it. So I have oh. a specialist like telling me, wait, can I look at that again? Oh, you're so lucky there's something like that for you where you have your schedule and your data and progress reports and the graph and all of those things. And so, um, yes, we have people that are very jealous of our speech. I know we've had, we've had requests over the years and we kept Lisa and I, again, I think that's one of the reasons we love what we were able to create is because we are, that's our, that's our field. We are school-based SLPs. We knew the problems. And so we wanted to create a solution. Um, and so we didn't want to do it before we were ready. We were just like super committed to this and, and school-based SLPs more so than all SLPs. And so now, you know, then it, then it got to the point where we thought now let's, we got to serve the whole student. So anyway, I think it's, it's all for the children. Children, right? Anytime, well, it's we've done. We do that because we've done some like business talks. People invite us, and everyone's always fascinated that, like, oh my gosh, what you do for children? And we're like, that's that's just what we do. Like, it's, it's <laughs> ordinary to us, but they mm. get focused on it. So we made this joke. We do the hand wave and do it's for the children. It's for the children, everything's for the children. That's right. Like a PSA. <laughs> I do love them. Well, it, this has been an amazing. Oh my gosh, amazing! So Before we wrap it up, is there anything else that you want to share with the audience, or any tips, or anything that we didn't get to cover? No, you guys, you guys went through all my tips, but I, <laughs> I do just want to recap and remind everyone, like, 
you know, working with these communities is something so special and it's such a unique opportunity. Um, but remember, like, no matter what, like you guys said, we're serving students that have needs and we're our mission as school-based SLPs. And you know what, as SLPs in general, because we do a lot of great work even in, in the medical setting as, as well. And like, give yourself grace. If you're finding that you felt a little guilty or something, it's okay. Like note it and grow. That's why we're doing this. Um, um, and constantly, you know, reflect, do some self-reflection on your own privilege. I still, I do it every day. You know, I don't think I'm not privileged. I do it every day. Um, just to give my students the best, um, possible experience that they can in speech and, um, just so that they can be encouraged moving yeah. forward. And I'm glad you talked about give yourself grace, but I also hope you're giving yourself self-care because yes. it, yeah, your job's not easy and it's exhausting. And I imagine you take things home with you, not work, but I mean the students and their needs all the time. So I, I hope you're taking good care of yourself too. Do you have like anything for self-care? Sorry. Yes. Oh, like, I'm talking me. to all of you, but really you, Susan. Oh, you're so sweet. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So um right now it's self-care is a little hard because I'm pregnant. And so <laughs> you know, now we're only seeing you from the chest up. I know, yeah. I'm Oh, I'm congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm kind of getting out of my first trimester right now. But so right now I'm like a little uncomfortable when I get home. But what <laughs> What I love, I do love um, going for walks. Those are um, even before pregnancy. There's just something about being outside, um, and just you know, I and I, the um, area I live in has a lot of beautiful trees and lots of great places to walk. So I do love going on a walk and and um, spending time out. So yes, yeah. that's what I'm doing. Thank you for asking. That was very yes. nice. Good, good. Oh my gosh, and congratulations. We want to see updates. Okay. I would At the pregnancy. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. This was an amazing episode. We're so excited to have had you on here. Thank you, Susan. Oh my gosh. Thank you guys so much again for having me. This was such a privilege. Thank you. 